I'm going to do some technical stuff up here, and they say that the devil's in the details. I don't believe that. I think the devil's in the technology. So let me see if I can get this started here. Uh, here we go. Almost there. Maybe. There it is. I did it. Good. It's good to see you all tonight. It's good to be with you. It's been a while since I've been down here to speak for you. Uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity. It's good to see you all. You all been so kind and um, generous and benevolent and supporting me in the work that I'm doing in Georgetown for so long and I just want you to know I truly appreciate that. There's some really good friends here in this room. I've known you all a good long time. It's good to see you all. It's good to be with you and to sing songs of praise to God and to be able to just fellowship with one another. If you'll get your Bibles out and be turning to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. I, um, I was talking last week when I came down to hear my brother-in-law speak. I was asking Adam and, and Glenn and a couple others, is there anything in particular that you think would be helpful if I preached on? And, and, and the consensus among a few of you all was that maybe a lesson along the lines of, of not worrying or being, being confident and not letting anxiety uh, be something that creeps in, not that it is a problem, but something that would kind of stave that off and keep that at bay might be helpful. So uh, I'm going to bring a lesson along those lines tonight. So hopefully this will be very profitable to you. Hopefully it'll be something that you'll be blessed by. And um, the question I want to ask to start this lesson by, sorry, I had a little thought popped in my head there. Sorry. Are there any fans of roller coasters in the room? Seriously, fans of roller coasters. That's it. Okay. The back, I expected the back row to like roller coasters. I used to love them. I can't do it. For a couple of reasons, I don't fit on very many roller coasters, and I get dizzy if I stand up out of my desk chair too fast. So I don't do many rides like that anymore. But, but we have a lot of, you know, people like roller coasters. Let me ask, ha, ha, any fans in here of the roller coaster of the year 2020? Is that, that's been a fun one, hasn't it? Um, you know, and it feels like we're kind of still stuck on the ride, doesn't it, in a lot of ways? And, and in a way, we are. The ride is called life. Life is full of ups and it's full of ups and downs and twists and turns and we can kick and we can scream about it and complain or we can just hold on and find peace somehow as we coast along those ups and those downs. And so what I want to offer tonight is some help with the latter, the somehow. How do we somehow find peace to coast along and ride those ups and downs? And let me say, feeling insecure, feeling uh, uncertain, those emotions are not unique experiences for us. That's something that all of us experience. People, people are people, and, and feeling this way is, is quite common. All of us have experienced this at some point and perhaps quite often. And, and the covenant people of Israel, God's people, experienced such and even wrote a song about it. And that's why I wanted you to start in Psalm 46. Psalm 46, and I'll read it to you if you just want to listen to it. God is our refuge and our strength. An ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we are unafraid. Even if the earth gives way, even if the mountains tumble into the depths of the sea, even if its waters rage and foam and mountains shake at its turbulence, we're unafraid. Verse 4, there's a river whose streams gladden the city of God, the holy habitation of Elion, of God most high. God is in the city, and it will not be moved. When daybreak comes, God will help it. Nations were in turmoil, kingdoms were moved, his voice thundered forth, and the earth melted away. The Lord of the hosts 
is with us. Our fortress, the God of Jacob. Come and see the works of the Lord, the astounding deeds he has done on the earth. To the ends of the earth he makes wars cease. He breaks the bow, snaps the spear, burns the shields in the fire. Now verse 10 is the one I want you to notice. Be still and know that I am God. Supreme over the nations, supreme over the earth. The Lord of the hosts is with us, our fortress, the God of Jacob. I, I like this psalm. This is one that I'll jump over and read from time to time because there's things in it that I find very encouraging. When, when life is, is tough, it helps me to regain my footing. But there was something different that I noticed the last time I read this, and this was a few weeks ago, I read through this, and something struck me like a stick upside the head. And here's what I realized. Yes, the Lord is present when life is hard, no doubt. He's our refuge. He's our strength. He is sovereign. He's the source of all blessings. But here's what I noticed. He is. That's what struck me. He is. He just is. God is. And this is simple, but it's extremely profound. This statement, like I said, it just really struck me. Understanding that God is gave me new insight and comfort as to why the Lord is all that he is. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our, our sovereign. All He's our blesser. All these things. He is that. He does that. But it's because he is. And if you can understand this, like I did, instantly this psalm made more sense to me. And it, and it just brought supreme comfort. And I want to share this insight with you. And, and it all revolves around one question. And I'm assuming this will change it. If I turn it on, maybe. See, I told you the devil's in the, in the technology. Okay. Let's see. I wonder if I just do this. Anybody got a guess about how we change it? Hmm. There it goes. I just didn't, wasn't pushing hard enough. I changed up here. Hmm. No technological people in here? <laughs> I don't have to use it, but I'm going to show you all some Hebrew words, and it'll be a whole lot easier if I can put them up here than trying to spell them out. Hmm. You think it's frozen? May I push too many? There it goes. I just need to be more patient, don't I? You got it? Is it working? Okay. You are the man. I'm going to put these things down here and not be tempted to touch any of them. The question that needs to be answered that everything revolves around is, what is God's name? Now, maybe like, whoa, that's a, t a left turn. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. The question we need to answer is, what is God's name? See, to answer that question, you have to understand the concept of, of a name. From, from an ancient Eastern perspective. See, to us as Westerners, to our thought, a name is a word or words by which an entity is designated and distinguished from others, right? Jim, Randy, David, right? That's, that's what we think names are. But in Hebrew thought, to the, to the thinking of those who read, wrote and read the Bible, a name is a way of revealing something about the individual, something about someone's very identity, someone's very essence. It is something that expresses the reality of that thing or person. For example, the two that I always come to mind because I named my sons this were the sons of Jacob by Rachel. 
You remember he had two sons by, by, by Rachel. The first son's name was Joseph. And Joseph is not just a nice name, it is, but Joseph means God will add a son to me, or God will add to me a son. So his name literally means God will add. So when, when she looked at her son, well, God gave me a son. God added a son, his, and that word in Hebrew is Yosef. And so she named him that. Uh, a little bit later, she had another son. She died in childbirth, and, and Jacob renamed that son from son of my sorrow to son of my right hand. Ben Yamin, which means son of my right hand. And that's the reality of who that child was. He was his, I joke with my youngest, my right hand man is maybe how we might say something like that. And, and, and it's the same with the name of God. But in the scriptures, the essence or the identity of the Lord is not expressed in one name necessarily. You get essences and different, different characteristics in many names. Uh, and, and a lot of times people like to study those, and maybe you all have at some point. But it's interesting to study these names and learn more about who our Lord is. Because each one tells us something about a characteristic or an action of God. But for this study, we're actually going to look at the name God used when he introduces himself to Moses, if you'll give a click there, and we'll turn over to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, that's handy. I might have to start doing that at home, having somebody click. I like that. That's, that's pretty nifty. Uh, in Exodus chapter 3, you probably remember this story, this context. Moses had fled from Egypt because he had killed a man and he feared for his own safety and life, and he went into the desert where the Midianites lived. He he met a, 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 a gal, and he married her, and he's a shepherd now, and he's out watching the sheep, and he looks up on the side of a mountain, and there's a tree or a bush that's just a flame, but it's not burning up. And as, as I did, would have done the same thing he did. I'm going to go check that out. We walked up there, and we remember this story in that conversation with God, who was in the presence of an angel in that bush. He's having a conversation with God himself. And, and, and this conversation is recorded here in Acts, uh, excuse me, Exodus chapter 3. So let's pick up in verse 13. Moses said to God, look, when I appear before the people of Israel, God's already said you're going to go back to Egypt and, and talk to Pharaoh for me and let my people go and all that stuff. He says, well, okay, when I go back and appear before the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. Well, he says, God, they're going to ask me, what is his name? What am I to tell them? Moses is saying, I'm going to go by for you. Okay, but what do I tell them what your name is? Who are you? You know, and that question seems a, a little bit unnecessary, but it's a legitimate question. If you think about it, in Egypt, they had all these different gods, and they all had names, and they all had holidays and rituals and ceremonies and maybe even temples and things like that. He's like, what's your name so I can tell them who you are? The answer is extremely important. Notice God's answer starting in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am what I am. That's his answer. What's your name, God? I am what I am. He goes on to say, here is what to say to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God said further to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, Adonai, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered generation after generation. 
This answer is really important, my friends. The first thing I want you to, want you to notice, give it a click there, brother. And, and, and first thing you've got to notice is that God's name is not God. Did you know that? God's name is not God. It's interesting to understand that the word God comes from the Old English, and it means supreme being, deity. It has reference to the Christian God, of course, along with perhaps thousands of other gods. It can mean an image of God. It can be a godlike person. And the word traces its lineage back through Proto-Germanic, Old Saxon, Old Frisian, and Dutch to terms that they have no clue what they really originally mean. It might have originally meant that which is invoked as in a divine entity summoned to a sacrifice. But God is not a word technically that you'll find in the Bible. God, G-O-D, God, as we pronounce it. By the way, if somebody says, oh, God, that's not taking the Lord's name in vain because his name is not God. We'll get to that here in a second. That's another lesson for another time because it actually leaves the door wide open uh, to relative interpretation. Because here's what, if you ever did this, I'll never go to New York City, at least I hope I don't ever have to, but if I do, or if you did, and you went on a city bus full of people, and you got a moment of courage, and you stood up and say, I believe in God, right? Give a testimony, be, be, a, be a witness there. If you have sitting on that bus a Muslim, a Christian, a Catholic, a Buddhist, a pagan, a Wiccan, God means a whole lot of different things to a whole lot of different people. The word is technically just not very helpful at all, biblically speaking. But the Lord's response is truly, click brother. The Lord said, in Hebrew, he said, Moses, my name is Ayach Asher Ayach. Now that's Hebrew. I'm, I've studied a little bit of Hebrew. It, this answer is so critical. In Hebrew, Ayach Asher Ayach means I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. If I walked up and I shook Glenn's hand, and he said, my name is Glenn. I'm like, hi, Glenn. But God, uh, Moses walked up to the bush, and the, and the deity that spoke to him said, my name is Aya Asher Aya. What does that even mean? See, rather than what we're traditionally taught to think of as a name like like, you know, like, like Tom or something like that. The Lord answers Moses with a statement about his essence, his reality. God said, I am what I am. And from this, even though the etymology of this name is not completely certain, many scholars believe that this phrase, a yuh, a sher, a yuh, is similar to the Hebrew word for life. The Hebrew word for life is very similar, and many scholars suggest that the Lord was claiming to be the one true living deity who is self-existent. And I believe that's probably right. It's interesting to note that this truth about the Lord, the truth that he spoke about himself, this truth about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's referred to as his name, is completely unique to him and only him. And it cannot be said of another, nor can it be said by another with any shred of truth. Think about that. Nobody else is, is the one true living God, and there is no other God that can say, I am the one true living God. It is completely unique. This renders the name of the Lord as technically unspeakable by any other, since it cannot be true of any other. Now, does that confuse anybody in here? 
Okay, I saw one honest nod from a <laughs> let me Let me help you understand this just a bit more. Turn over to the book of Judges very quickly. I'm, I'm hoping to make this make sense in just one second. In Judges chapter 13, even though this is weird, it, here it is in the Bible. God made sure it was recorded. We're supposed to learn something from this. In Judges 13, go ahead and click the slide. Go ahead and click one more. I probably forgot to tell you. There we go. Judges 13, verses 15 through 18. In this little account here, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, an appearance of the Lord. When you see angel of the Lord, it's, it's, it gets very technical, but understand this is as if he was speaking to the Lord by through the angel of the Lord. He says this, please stay with us a bit longer so that we can cook a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, even if I do stay, I won't eat your food. And if you prepare a burnt offering, I must, you must offer it to the Lord. That word there in Hebrew is that's his name for Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord Manoah said to the angel of the Lord tell us your name so that when your words come true we can honor you the angel of the Lord answered him why are you asking about my name it is wonderful now, I've seen people take that verse and say God is, God's name is wonderful. And that sounds really great, but in Hebrew, let me give you another Hebrew word. In Hebrew, the word here that is often translated in our English Bibles as wonderful is pili, and it actually literally means in Hebrew, incomprehensible. He says, why are you asking about my name? It is so incredibly wonderful, it's not comprehensible by humanity, essentially is what he's saying. So confusion, amazement, and even mild headaches are understandable when we think about this. But here's the point. The fact that the Lord is, is what is important. If we do not understand that the Lord is, his very name that he spoke to Moses states the truth about his essence, his reality, that he is, and if we don't understand that he is, then it just really doesn't matter what we call him. We must seek to understand that he alone is the self-existent living deity. That he is sovereign in all reality. That all things were created from nothing but his words. That he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and he knows you. And see, if you miss this, you miss everything. So what does this all mean? Click, please. It means that if we fail to discern that the Lord is, then we will likely fail to keep the most important of commands. Over in Matthew chapter 22, go ahead and get another click there, please. In Matthew 22, look at verse 36. Turn over here, please. Matthew 22 and verse 36. Crowds had gathered around Jesus, and he's teaching, and, 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 and they were trying to trap him. One of these Torah teachers, these, these experts in the law, he says, Rabbi, which of the commands in the law is the most important? Jesus told him, quoting here from Deuteronomy 6, which we're going to turn to in a second, he quotes and says, You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the greatest and the most important command. And the second is similar to it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets are dependent on these two commands. Jesus directly quoting here. Let's go over to Deuteronomy and look. Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6. Obviously, in the order of your scriptures, Deuteronomy takes place after Exodus. Chronologically, it's after Exodus. Now, we come over here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we find a very famous passage starting in verse 4. And this is what Jesus quotes when he's asked, what is the whole meaning of the law? What's the most important command? He quotes this. Hear, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your being, and all your resources, is what the Hebrew kind of says. These words which I am ordering you today are, are to be on your heart, and you are to teach them carefully to your children. You're to talk about them when you sit at home, when you're traveling on the road, when you lie down, and when you, when you get up. Tie them on your hand as a sign and put them at the front. Uh, of a headband around your, your forehead and write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Keep it in front of you at all times. But do you see this phrase? We sing it sometimes in our hymnals and whatnot. Hear, listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is what's often called the Shema in Hebrew. It's perhaps the most well-known and most often quoted prayer in all of Judaism through all time. The Shema, the most important of all Jewish prayers, it's the one Jesus clearly loves. It. He quotes it word for word, and at first glance it appears that this prayer declares a fundamental fact of monotheism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And I keep holding my finger up this way, but, and, and yes, that, that is true, there is one true living God, but there's a little bit more beneath the surface that I want us to scratch on for a second. The Hebrew word echad, which is translated as one, can mean one, one single thing, but the word also means a certainty. And in Hebrew, that's what they do. One word can have a couple meanings, and you're supposed to think about both of them when you read the word. We don't really think that way and read that way in, in English and modern English like that. But, but in Hebrew, when they heard the Lord your God is a had, they thought, well, one, but also a certainty. So another way of thinking about this prayer could be, here, Israel, the Lord our God is. And that ties us right back to his name. A yuh, a share, a yuh. Now, I will, I will challenge everybody here to go home and meditate on that. If it's confusing now, just, just spend some quiet time and meditation on this because, because this is important. One of the reasons this is important is to discern, to, to discern that the Lord is, is because if we don't, first of all, we will, fail to, we will fail to keep the most important commands to love the Lord our God with everything because he just simply is. But, click please, we cannot please him if we do not believe that he is. I don't care how good you are and how nice you are. If you do not believe that he is, you do not please him. In the book of Hebrews, this is a passage that's well known to, to many. Hebrews chapter 11. Let's go here and and read this verse. In the, right here at the beginning of the honor roll of faith of all these wonderful accounts of, of men like, like, like Enoch and Noah and Abraham and all that. Look at verse 6. And without faith, believing, trust, it's impossible to be pleasing to God. Because he who approaches him must believe that he is or that he exists. He's a reality and that he becomes a rewarder of those who diligently seek him out. Do you see it? It's right there. 
You cannot be pleasing to God if you do not believe that he is. Faith, trusting, it means believing completely that the Lord exists. That faith moves us to rest our hope on him. It moves us to follow him wherever he leads us and to do whatever he declares, not because he's a taskmaster or or we are robots and slaves, but because we trust him and we love him and we believe that he exists and he is the sovereign of our life and that everything that we do is in full submission to him, whether we realize it or not. Do you understand that? Every human being that's alive on this planet right now is in full submission to his sovereignty, whether they realize it and are actively seeking to do so. Nobody falls outside of his sovereignty. He is. Lacking this kind of faith likely means that we are filled with fear and doubt. And fear, listen, brothers and sisters, fear is practical atheism. Fear is practical atheism. Because, because if the Lord is, then what's there to be afraid of? Oh, well, I might get sick. I might die. I might suffer. Yeah, okay. Newsflash, every one of you is going to get sick. And every last one of you will die if the Lord tarries. But the Lord still is. That doesn't mean it's easier or that we look forward to it or we're, 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 we're ushering it in quicker. But it just is. Lacking the right kind of faith will lead us down a path of fear and doubt, not remembering and recalling and living as if we truly believe that the Lord is. In fact, I, I'm going to back up one step. There is something to be afraid of. And it's found in the chapter just previous to the one we read out of in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31. Hebrews 10 and verse 31 tells us there's something we can be afraid of, if you will, because it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You want to be afraid of something? That's what you can be afraid of, falling into the hands of the living God. And that means to fall under the judgment of, not the mercy and the grace of and the salvation of, but to fall under the, the, the judgment, the oppression, if you will, the 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 the, the reconciling of righteousness versus wickedness of the living God. That's something you could be afraid of. And if more people were, this building would be packed every time the doors are open. So here's what I'm building up to. What's the application for you all here at Lakeside? I love you all. Like I said at the beginning, you all have been so kind and benevolent to me. and and, And Lord willing, we continue that relationship. We got a lot of good work going on in Georgetown. How might this lesson apply to Lakeside right now? Well, let me offer this as a suggestion as your brother and as your friend uh, here. Let me suggest, as I understand this congregation here, perhaps one of your biggest challenges currently is lacking human leadership and scriptural organization. Right? You all need a preacher. You all need some elders and deacons, maybe not in that order. And you likely feel the need for a preacher at the most since, you, since Josh has moved and, and recently. But, but let me understand, help you understand. Never let the need for elders and deacons wane in your hearts because without them, this congregation, to be blunt, is not organized according to Scripture, the authority of Scripture. So, so, so if that's what this congregation is needing, feeling the need for, how can this lesson about God is and his name and the reality of God, how can it help you all? at this time, especially during your search for a preacher. Well, let me suggest, if you can remember that God is, and just be still, and know that, and remember that, 
and understand that the needs of this congregation of faithful saints does not go unnoticed by the one true living God, then that will bring comfort to you, doesn't it? There's never a moment that God is not aware of what is needed here. He is. You can calm your hearts in that realization and know that the Lord has a plan. He always has a plan, and his plans are never defeated. They might be stalled a little bit by the adversary, but they're never defeated. His plan will succeed. It will be fulfilled. And if you're like me at all, I get a little antsy. And I start trying to make things happen. I try to start forcing something to happen when I really just need to be still. And remember that the Lord is in full control. Do you, let me ask you honestly. Do you think that the Lord desires for this congregation to continue without leadership and sound teaching? Of course not. You all are a collection, a community of believers that build up a part of the kingdom, and he wants to see his kingdom flourish. He doesn't want this. So if you're worried about that, well, just quit worrying about it. He doesn't want that. But perhaps this is a season. He will see his kingdom prosperous. He will see his kingdom strong. But his plans are often secret, and his timeline exists outside of time. So, well, what can you do about that? What can you do with this information? Let me just again say, be still. Be still and strengthen your hearts in full assurance of who Yahweh is. That's who he is. That's his very name, his essence, his reality. And with knowing that, you can just wait on the Lord. The clock up there is spinning. Listen, God cares about everything, but he could care less about time. He operates outside of that. You might want something to happen right now, but he may have a different plan. That's okay. Strengthen your hearts in full assurance of who he is. Wait on him. He is moving all the time. And he will continue to do so for the benefit of his kingdom. There is never a day that his kingdom doesn't advance. You may not see it. I was teaching a class of teenage and college age people just recently, and, and my sons were in there. And I said, you know what? Continental drift is a reality. If you went over to California today and you put a stake in the ground, that scientists do this, and you walked away from it, came back a year or two later, the, the, the rock that you put in near beside will move two to three centimeters a year. But if you stand there and you stare at that stick or that rock or whatever, you're not going to perceive that movement. But it's, it's a reality nonetheless. God's kingdom is as much a reality as he is because he's a reality. So his kingdom is a reality and there's never a day. There's never a day that he is not moving and working for the benefit of his kingdom. So take joy in that. Take joy in watching him work out his plans, even in the smallest details. And you have the privilege right now of, of, of watching and seeing that. Love him, worship him, share him. This is a really good time to be, to be taking your, your personal testimony of what the Lord has done for you in your life and, and talking to your neighbors. This is a really good time to love the brethren and worship with the brethren and share all things with your brothers and sisters here at Lakeside. I'll tell you what you should not do. Don't try to force the Lord's hand. Don't try to force his plan. Don't try to force his timeline. Do not resist the Lord's hand or his plan or his timeline. Do not ex ignore also the Lord's hand or his plan or his timeline. He's working it out. So if he's working it out, what do you got to worry about? 
You see how that works? He is the great I am. He is the one true God. I would suggest that you could read Ephesians chapter 3 a little more often if you need a little bit of extra credit work on this. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. There it is. I didn't know it was up there. Ephesians 3 verse 20 and 21. Listen to what Paul said. Here's a man who dedicated his entire life to working in the kingdom. He saw the Lord working and moving. This power was unbelievable. He says, now to him, to him, Yahweh, who, is, who by his power working in us, is able to do far beyond anything we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in the Messiah Jesus from generation to generation forever. Remember, that's what God said. My name will be this from generation to generation. Here Paul is saying he's going to be doing and working. Let's just give him glory from generation to generation. I might even think about memorizing that verse, right? Or posting it somewhere on the doorpost of your house or someplace where you might see it regularly. And, and listen, you've got to believe that. You need to believe that. Because with so much at stake, we have to be sure to always seek the Lord. So very quickly, for the last couple of minutes, go ahead and click again, please, brother. How do we seek the Lord? Let's talk about this. Obviously, you don't seek him physically. Jonah tried to physically flee from the presence of the Lord. We know how that worked out for him. No, you can no more physically find God, the Lord, than Jonah was able to physically hide from the Lord. He's everywhere. He's everywhere all the time. But we can only seek him with our spiritual senses. Yes, there are evidences of his creation, the trees are about to start changing color and through the trees God is going to show us it's it's okay to lose everything and we can do it gracefully that's what the changing of colors and the falling of leaves can teach us God's in control and it's okay to lose everything and we can do it beautifully right there's always a lesson we can always see that but he cannot be seen or found as we're accustomed to finding or seeing as but it is he's there it's not some sort of cosmic game of hide and seek. We can seek the one, click please, who is with our hearts. That's how we seek him. You probably understand this, but let's talk about it for a second. We seek the one who is with our hearts. And of course, we don't mean the muscle that's pumping blood. We seek him with our mind. This means by prayer. It means by study. It means by meditation. Go ahead and click again, brother. I, prayer is calling out to the Lord from the heart through the mouth. I would venture a guess outside of public worship and the dinner table, the vast majority of your prayers are, are silent. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, your prayers should be very private. You're supposed to go into your closet or into your room. But don't ever neglect spoken prayer. There's great power in proclaiming your words to the Lord because that's what prayer is. It's calling out to God from the heart, through the mouth. And if you don't know how to pray well, well, ask. I guarantee you there's someone here. Ladies, find an older woman and have her teach you. You know, Utilize the resources you have here, an older gentleman. If you don't know how to pray, then ask how to pray. Jesus teaches you how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ask for our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses. I mean, find that, the Lord's prayer, and just pattern that. It's not hard, but you need to call out to the Lord from the heart, through the mouth. You also need to study. You know, preachers always say this, you've got to study. You've got to study. 
You know, a lot of people out there wanting to have some Holy Spirit experience. I'm going to tell you, you can have a Holy Spirit experience, but it's not going to be doing cartwheels or growing, you know, broken limbs back or something. You're going to have it through studying what the Spirit has inspired men to reveal from the mind of God. If you don't know how to study, then ask. It's one of the biggest areas that in the body of Christ, in the pulpit and out, where we have a, a shortfall is in good scholarship, knowing how to study the Word of God. Learn how to study. Spend time in it. And part of that is meditation. Part of that is sitting and meditating on the Word of God. See if there's another click there, Brother Andy. I think there might be one more. Yeah. Meditation is, is a lost art. I'm not talking about some greasy old dreadlock guy on top of a mountain sitting there chanting a mantra. That's not how biblical meditation works. Biblical meditation, by the way, the vast majority of the Bible is written as Jewish meditation literature. You can meditate almost the whole Bible in Jewish biblical style the way Jesus or Paul would have. It's really quite simple. Start by turning off your, your, your phone, laying it down in another room. You don't need it. Hush up is what I say. Just be quiet. Calm yourself. Be quiet. And then don't sit there and try to empty yourself like New Agers want to do. There, there could be some benefit for health reasons for that. But, but biblical meditation is the repeating of a verse or a scripture. Maybe you could start with Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Or maybe you could go back to Exodus 3 or, or Deuteronomy 6. Some of these passages we talked about tonight. And you just read it. And you think about it. You memorize it. You roll it through your mind. It's the very idea of chewing on it. Like a cow chews its cud, literally, is the idea. You, you, you're, you're chewing on this, and then you just listen to the Word of God with your heart. That's meditation. That's how we seek God, prayer, study, and meditation. And if you're not carving out time for that, then you're not seeking God. I, it's great that you're here. It's great that you come to church. It's great that you read your assigned Bible passage a day. Those things are great. I'm not diminishing that at all. But if you're not doing these things on your own time, you're not seeking God. Not fully. Not as much as you could. And my friends, to do that brings us right back to Psalm 46. I think this is the last clip, brother. We're right back to Psalm 46. Be still. Be still. And know that I am God. Know that God is and listen, I understand that this teaching is challenging, especially in our busy world. we got a lot going on. But if you will learn to be still, it will come to you, and fear will depart from you. Anxiety will depart from you. And yes, you should do this as individuals, but you can do this collectively too. You can pray and fast together. You can sit together, and you all can edify and encourage one another, just like we're doing here tonight and on Wednesday nights and other times. But let me give you one more very, very quick Hebrew teaching, Hebrew word, because I think this is very helpful. The word translated in Psalm 46, verse 10, for be still in most of your translations, that Hebrew word is rafa, and it means to slacken or to sink or to relax, to drop down. It's what the word means in Hebrew. And if you'll permit me a little bit of paraphrase, Essentially, what we read here in Psalm 46, the psalmist is saying, relax, calm yourself. Maybe we might say for back in the 90s, chill. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's too far. Know that God is. 
don't let the adversary distract you with all this. Listen, there's a lot of important stuff, but it can almost all but be a distraction if you forget that God is. So relax, calm, be still. Be still mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Be still and know that God is. So what will you do with this? Will you slacken your grip on what you perceive as reality? Life is reality, yes. Jobs are reality, finance is reality, politics are reality, people are reality, health is reality. Those things are reality, but, we, but those, are they the real, true, one reality? The name of God tells us there is one reality, and that is God. Everything else has to be kept in proper perspective. We need to learn what really is. Eyeh, esher, eyeh. God is the great I am. Outside of this fundamental truth, there, there is nothing else. I challenge you to, to, to meditate on the outside of the fact that God is. There is no reality. So the question that often comes up for folks is who aren't submitting to God, who aren't accepting these truths, who aren't, who aren't comfortable with giving their life to the Lord is, is what are you trying to hold on to? And, and you know, I understand holding on to what we can control, what we can influence, what we can do. That's like being like Jonah. He could control putting himself on a boat and trying to run and trying to hide. He, he was trying. But the great I am knew right where he was the whole time and kept seeking him. Same with Paul. God was goading him. Goading, anybody get livestock? Goading means to poke. And if you've ever worked with livestock, it takes more than one poke most time to move a big dumb animal, doesn't it? You got a poke, you got a poke. He was goading Paul for perhaps months or years. I don't know. It wasn't one, hey, Paul, it was goad after goad. And Paul tried to, to push back and, and to resist, but the great I am continued to pursue him. If you're feeling that kind of, of goading, prodding, you need to listen to it. That's the Lord working on your heart, trying to get you to stop holding on to whatever it is that you won't slacken your grip on, whether that's your pride or your, your grandma's faith or your job or whatever it is, God's like, let go of that. Those things aren't true reality. Those things are distractions. You need to let go of that and know that he is. You have to make your heart right with God, and that's how we do it. Making your heart right with God is coming to grips with what we're talking about, accepting that, living in full submission to that. And yes, it means doing what he says. And since he's sovereign, since he is king, he says, come die with me. Not literally. He says, come die with me by putting to death the old man, the old woman of sin, and symbolically dying and being buried in the water grave of baptism and symbolically being raised to walk in newness of life. And waters, I'm sure it's right here behind me. You could do that. That's just... Simple obedience. But it begins with letting go, slacking up on those things that you're hanging on to, and you give that to the Lord. You make your heart right with him. And if that's something you're thinking about doing, you have an opportunity tonight. Not to sound too cliched, it might be your last opportunity. It might be one of many. I don't know. You don't know either. The great I am wants you to make your heart right with him. And if you desire to do that, you have an opportunity to do so. Won't you come forward and let us know if we can help you as we stand to sing.